theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaquia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Joy. Good morning, Dr. Amy. It's wonderful to be here. This is an exciting conversation that we're going to have today, a very important one in light of our teacher shortage. We're going to talk about para to teacher and how paras are best fit to fill that need of teachers that we desperately need right now. So who are our friends this morning, Amy? Well, we have Eric Malnachenko, who is the Director of Human Resources at Flossmoor School District. Rob Leininger, who is the EL Director at West Harvey Dixmoor District. And our dear friend, Jason Vignone, who is the Director of Graduate Admissions at Governor State University. So we've got lots of questions. And yeah, I love it. We're going to hang out with the guys this morning. So this is quite a treat. And these are really some of our go-to people. I just want to say a little bit about Eric and Rob. These are true partners. Amy, one of the things that you and I have really strived to do is to create partnerships, right? And we think that that is key in preparing teacher candidates. It's not just a one-way relationship anymore. This goes both ways. Eric and Rob have been key in that partnership. I know that we can call on them anytime for anything. They can call on us for anything. So it has been truly a great partnership. So I just want to thank you guys before I forget to say that. Absolutely. I know. I'm so happy for our partnership as well. And Jason, of course, he's the person we call all the time. And we'll hear from Jason a little bit later because whenever we have a prospective candidate, Jason is the person that I rely on. He just wraps his arms around any new candidate, any prospective candidate to get them in the program get all their questions answered. He just makes that process so easy for them. So Jason is absolutely somebody that we want everyone to know about. So thank you for being here, Jason. I'm happy to join as always. Look forward to answering any questions students or prospective students might have. So thanks for inviting me this morning. Okay, so Amy, can we talk about why we're even here? Because really we have a teacher shortage. So let's dig into the teacher shortage. So where are we seeing the greatest shortages? Eric and Rob, I'll leave that up to you. What are you saying? I know that in the past, we've experienced some some needs in special education positions. There's been a couple of times where we've gone deep into the school year without somebody in a special education role. This past school year, some of our middle school endorsement positions, such as math and science, some of those positions we struggled to fill and actually with the number of candidates for the for those positions. We were fortunate to, enough to find candidates and, and 
people are working out well. They just weren't as plentiful as our K through five positions. And same thing with ELL, where we, we struggled with some ELL candidates earlier, or actually it was late in the summer. So, but again, fortunately we found somebody, but the candidate pool was, was sparse. Yeah, so that's what we're hearing across the state. And you actually just hit all those positions that we know are high need positions, ELL position, special ed position, middle grades positions in all content areas. So you just hit it of what's going on with the entire state. So we're seeing a shortage like we've never seen before. We already had a teacher shortage. And now by the fact that we have COVID and so many of our great teachers have retired. And so we see this huge need for quality teachers. Are you seeing something similar, Rob? Uh, yeah, the only thing I would add is some specialist teachers like physical education, music, art, so, but everything else I echo completely. We were unable they, to fill They've it. retired, right? So we, art teachers and PE teachers and music teachers, we weren't focused on that for a long time. And now they're retiring. Who are we going to replace them with? So that's a challenge. Then we also have the challenge of diversity, right? So talk about your student makeup and your teacher makeup. What does that look like nowadays? In our district in uh, Flossmoor 161, I would say that we're about 75% minority students and our teaching staff doesn't reflect our student base. We, we have put in some measures this past school year to increase our diversity pool. Out of our new teachers that we hired, almost 50% of our teachers were uh, from a minority background. So that's been one of the highest increases that we've done in this past year. So we still have a lot of work to do and a lot of room to grow. And we'd like to make sure that our teaching staff is a little bit closer to our student population in terms of makeup. Yeah, we are close to 60% African-American and 40% Hispanic. I think we have two or three students in the district who are from India, and we have very few teachers who are Hispanic. So that, that's our biggest deficit in terms of minority yeah. teachers. So that's what we're seeing. And you may not see it as much as the rest of the state just because of where you're located. But this is a huge problem. And Amy and I did research many, many moons ago, and it anticipated that we would still have this problem that over 50%, like right now, over 50% of our student population are students of color and 80% of our teaching population are still white female. Let me ask this though, Joy and Eric and Rob, what is the makeup, the demographics, the diversity of your paraprofessionals? Oh yeah. Yeah, that is a great question because our paraprofessionals are much more diverse than our, mm -hmm. our teaching staff. I would say about 60% of our paraprofessionals are people of color. We have one non-minority paraprofessional. Wow. We have an opportunity here. We're talking about a paraprofessional pathway to being a teacher and getting those teaching credentials. Before we get into the pathway itself, Let's talk about the roles that paraprofessionals have, because we're going to loop back around and talk about how we're going to fill those positions uh -huh. once we get them into those teacher positions. So what are their roles and what are their responsibilities? So in our district, our paraprofessionals are ground floor team players, main, they have insights to particular students that teachers might not, you know, teacher is focused on the whole group. 
but a paraprofessional is working with certain individual students and they, they have the biggest insights to some of our highest needy students. They're in there working as, as best as they can to make sure that IEPs are followed, modifications are being done. Feedback is then given to the teacher on how to improve instruction for that particular student or a group of students. So they're not just somebody that we treat off to the side or somebody that's just there. They're very much a part of the school and very much a part of the team. So we provide training opportunities to make sure that they know what the expectations are, that they're treated as each part of the school. So they're very much ingrained into our culture in each of our schools. Robert, you're part, like Eric, you're part of our Para to Teacher initiative. Why do you think that paras are best suited to fill this teacher shortage? First of all, they want to. I, I polled every paraprofessional in our district, and even the, the particular paraprofessional who's been doing that job for 25 years and who's often expressed, no, I don't really want to be a teacher, the main barrier to entry has been the fact that she would have to stop working to then student teach and take classes and pay for classes. And that transition has always just been a barrier. So I, the number one reason is because they want to. People who want to teach are the people that we want to teach. Yeah. yeah. And Amy, you saw some of that in the survey. You want to talk about what we found in the survey? We surveyed some of Rob and Eric's paraprofessional as well as other paraprofessionals in the Southland. We had over 200 people fill out this survey. I mean, over 200 people responded. Well over 100 of these people who responded said, yes, I want to do this. I want to become a teacher. And the reasons why is because they care about students. They love being in the classroom. Wow. I mean, that's, those are the dispositions we're looking for. Like you said, we want people who want to be there. The biggest barriers, just to echo what Rob is saying, is that time constraint. Some of them might have a second job or it's the financial piece of losing the opportunity to be the paraprofessional in the classroom in order to take classes or to student teach. And we are working in this partnership to create that pathway to overcome and eliminate some of these barriers. But those were the biggest barriers we saw in this survey was the time. There might have been other commitments and that student teaching that no one can afford to take off that semester. Right. So now that we've created this pathway to teachers, what we're doing is we're taking our programs at Governor State University, our teacher prep programs, and we're constructing them in a way to make it amenable for working paraprofessionals to get their degree or professional educator's license without having to take off work. Because like Amy said, that is the number one barrier. How do I take time off work? We see that there's some of the least paid educators, right? And so they're already struggling financially. We have the program scheduled for evenings. Some programs are hybrid. Some programs will be weekends so that it fits within their schedule. I think the most important thing is that their field experience and student teaching will be job embedded. And that's what Dr. Amy spoke about. That is a huge barrier. Just that opportunity alone is great. So that means some flexibility on the school district. Can you talk about like what kind of things that you have to do on your end to make that possible? In the past, we've had a paraprofessional who was assigned to a classroom, so that paraprofessional stayed in the same classroom all day. When the time came for that individual to 
do her student teaching, we made arrangements with the teacher and then our teachers union to say, hey, instead of having this person go to another classroom, the teacher is amenable to being the student teacher's mentor. Can we just have them switch roles? The teacher was allowed for that. The teacher's union allowed for that. So we just had, as the paraprofessional began picking up more of the instruction, the teacher then became the paraprofessional. You know, there was no changes in pay. The paraprofessional was still able to work and earn her salary while completing student teaching at the same time. And that person was able to finish. Some of the other things that we've kind of looked at is if a paraprofessional needs to do some of that field experience and their role might not allow them to do that. We've kind of looked into, well, let's have these paraprofessionals switch roles for this period of time. So then that way, this role is a little bit more amenable to that field experience. So those are some of the things that we've done and that we're working on right now. I have a follow-up question. Some people might think that it's easier than it really is. Of course, you're in this classroom, you can just take on that role, but you mentioned something about the teacher unions. That is a big consideration. We have to have those understandings in place within the district and then across from district to GSU. It has to be very clearly laid out. Are there other pieces to that that you want to add or Rob, do you want to add? I'll say Eric's probably a better person to talk about the inner workings of how to make the, you know, negotiate with the unions and and how to make that sort of work strategically. But I will say this may be uh, philosophically sort of a better strategy than the traditional model anyway. In particular, if what Eric says is true about how much we value what paraprofessionals do, and if we think that their responsibilities currently even are central to students growth and improvement and achievement, then uh, it could be potentially a better model moving forward than what we've done in the past, which is teachers, they get all their at their schooling and then they go ahead and try it and then they become a teacher. Like this way, their experience and education are intertwined throughout that process and it'll help school systems in the short term as well, just as we get more people working directly with kids, hopefully. So we talked about there being a shortage of teachers, but there's also a shortage of quality paraprofessionals too. As we move to take paraprofessionals from their positions into teaching positions, that leaves a gap for paraprofessionals. So what are you doing with with your high school students or high school districts for high school students to be interested in becoming teachers so that they go from high school to becoming a paraprofessional? Before you answer that question directly, I will say that having this program in place, like meaning that it is a feasible opportunity for people to become paraprofessionals and then ultimately become a teacher. So easing that pathway to becoming a teacher by being a paraprofessional makes it more attractive to be a paraprofessional for the people that I've been recruiting to fulfill that role. So that's a huge part of it also. Yeah, absolutely. To echo what Rob said, I, we just hired a couple of paraprofessionals at the start of the month. And one of our selling pieces to them is they were both interested in becoming teachers was this partnership. Again, so glad that we're doing this, but it, to go back to, you know, the paraprofessional question, you know, we, we haven't made it that far in terms of how are we going to backfill our paraprofessionals. So because this partnership and making sure our paraprofessionals get taken care of to become that certified teacher was the priority. So 
the next step would be to work with our local high school, which is Homewood Flossmore High School. And I know that they had started a teacher cadet program maybe a couple of years ago or looking into that. So kind of extending now our partnership between GSU and us to now with us and HF to say, okay, now let's find those teacher cadet kids and say, hey, you can become a paraprofessional while you're going through your college courses, working, getting that real life experience. Eventually when you're done with school, you'll be able to go right into a teaching position and you've already had school experience. So that's even better for you. That's why we need this consortium so that we're all working together from P to 12. I know we're working with Thornton Fractional as well, and they have a teacher cadet program. We are currently writing the curriculum. One of our professors, Dr. David Conrad, He's writing the curriculum to prepare these high school students to take the paraprofessional test. Also, something else that we're doing is that we're approaching this from a legislative standpoint. Right now, there's three ways to become a paraprofessional. Number one, you can have a high score on your ACT. I don't know what that score is offhand. You can have an associate's degree or an equivalent to an associate's degree. Or you can be 19 and pass the paraprofessional exam. So what concerned me is this 19-year-old age requirement. So many of your high school students are graduating at age 18, not 19, and we don't want that gap in between. So we have presented something to legislative, which we think will pass, is changing the age requirement from 19 to 18. So that will help with that transition. Because you're right, we really need to attract students in middle school and high school to become teachers And I just really love how you all said it, Rob, when you talked about that seamless path. And this now becomes a recruitment tool for you to recruit paraprofessionals. I never really thought about it that way. Well, we now need to think about it that way. (laughs) If there was a streamlined pathway from high school all the way to teaching, that would certainly help with this teacher shortage I want to return to this, what you were talking about, the role of paraprofessionals. How does that current role that they have in the classroom position them for moving toward teacher licensure? What are they already doing that you think is great preparation? Well, I mean, a lot of them are doing small group instruction, which is huge for a teacher. A lot of them are doing behavior management and classroom management, which, again, if those things are not in place, uh, good luck trying to teach a kid how to read and write. So they're building relationships. They're getting to know our students on a personal level. Those are all things that a good teacher does. So they get to do it at a little bit more specific level, but then they could take those skills and apply them to the whole classroom once they're in their own classroom. They also do all the other stuff that teachers do throughout the building, like facilitate transitions, lunch duty, bus duty, all that kind of things that are challenging to learn as a new teacher. Well, you've already got that down. And so all you're focused on then is your instruction because everything else. And they do after school programs and have leadership roles there. So it's really I think it's even better preparation than I do too. It's great field experience, right? In preparation for being a teacher. Another thing that we learned in our research that rang true in the survey that we did is that paraprofessionals tend to live like within a five mile radius of where they work. Because of that, they know the community. 
So they know the community, they know the students, they know the other parents, and they have great relationships. And so they've already bought in. So when we talk about teacher retention and the burnout rate, that's a whole nother conversation. Paraprofessionals have already bought in to their community and to this whole education thing. Yes. Yeah. The majority of our paraprofessionals live in the Southland. Most of them are in our community. There's very few that commute. Right. So that's another plus. Let's transition to pathway. And how does a paraprofessional actually become a teacher? Because also looking at the surveys, there was a huge range. So the range was you had some paraprofessionals that had very little credits, some that had you know, like under 30 credit hours of college credits. We had some with associate's degrees. We had some with bachelor's degrees. We even had some with master's degrees. So there was a huge range of education. Because of that, there's multiple pathways by which they can become a teacher. And there was also, for the most part, paraprofessionals were indicating that they wanted to be in that similar grade range that they were already located. If they were in a primary school or elementary, they indicated that they wanted to be an elementary teacher. What are we doing to get them on that pathway to being a teacher? So some of the things that we will do is once one of our paraprofessionals becomes licensed, we're going to prioritize them in our selection process for a teaching position. So it's not just, oh, we have this partnership and you go off and do all your work and it says, you know, okay, good luck to you. Go go find a teaching job. No, we want to make sure that our people stay with us. So there will be some different things that we would do in our, our selection process for our paraprofessionals. And to, you know, one of the other things that we're kind of working on and exploring is what kind of tuition reimbursement options can we potentially provide our paraprofessionals? Currently in our district, our classified staff, our paraprofessionals don't have the opportunity for any tuition reimbursement, but because our school board values this partnership and we value this partnership, we want to see what other opportunities are there for us to help our paraprofessionals out because we are taking this seriously. So Jason, we need some help from you now. Let's look at some of those categories. So you can put your admissions and your financial aid hat on. So you have the paraprofessionals without an associate's degree. For our programs, we have a program designed specifically for them in early childhood, in elementary, and in secondary where they can come in and take all their courses during the evening, all the way through graduation. How do they get started, Jason? So this is that person that doesn't even have an associate's degree. Yeah. So for people that watch this that may not be as familiar with GSU, we didn't start admitting freshmen into GSU until 2014. So we're uniquely positioned to help a lot of different students, but especially non-traditional transfer, returning adult, graduate Students that are maybe a little more seasoned, as someone who was a more seasoned, I never like to be called an old student, so I always say a little more seasoned student, access is not going to be an issue. We offer so many of our classes at all levels in the evenings after 4.30, so almost designed for parapros that are in a building from 7.30 or 8 a.m. until 3.30. 
So they can do any of the programs, but for that group that, that maybe doesn't even have an associates or is just wrapping up an associates, it's a really simple process. All they're going to need is to go to our website, find our application and start the application process. We'll need transcripts from any college they've attended. We'll need transcripts probably from their high school if they have less than 30 credit hours as well to show proof that they graduated from high school. There's some other things we'll have to work through, but to get really down into the weeds would take an entire Facebook live session on its own. The best thing that they can do would be to reach out to us, to go to the website, request some information. We do virtual appointments so we can give them the personalized attention that they need. It can be on their lunch break from work. They don't have to worry about like, I don't get off till four. By the time I get over there, you guys are going to be gone. We do them all day long virtually. So on a lunch break, they can pop in for a 15 or 20 minute conversation and we can walk them through what that process would look like. We have articulations with most of the area community colleges and with the Illinois statewide transfer articulation, transferring in credits should not be a problem. Obviously, if they took a math class in 1974, it may have aged out or something like that, but we're always willing to work with them. We can discuss experiential learning or prior learning assessment to get them some credit hours for work they've already done. Um, Joy and Amy, I know I've had conversations with you guys about you have a parapro that's been in a classroom for 10 years. Do they really need to take that intro to, to ed class to learn how to run a classroom when they've been running one for so long? And we can talk to them about how to do that PLA request so that they can get some credit hours for things they've already done. And we're going to try to do everything we can for that group to get them as far into that degree as we can when they come in so we can get them through it and into those full-time teaching roles. Absolutely. That is so important that you mentioned PLA because we're also finding paraprofessionals that may, I have a bachelor's degree in business, but I want to be an early childhood teacher. And how do they capitalize on some of the experience that they already have? So Jason is right. Amy and I have had several meetings already now with PLA, prior learning assessment. So as Jason said, you have this paraprofessional that's proficient at using technology. How do they get some kind of credit or an opportunity to submit a portfolio to show, I know how to implement technology in the classroom or their foundations in education. We were working with a CTE teacher, like 10 years of experience in communication and wants to be an English teacher. That's a lot of experience in the English communication field. So how do we take that teacher's experience and now apply it towards credit so that we're reducing the financial responsibility for that teacher. And then there's lots of grants. I do want to say something about early childhood. I want to say something about a lot, but early childhood, just for a moment here. There's a huge early childhood initiative at the state level. We have an early childhood consortium with community colleges. In this program, any early childhood candidate that's work, part of the early childhood incumbent workforce, so that means any of your paraprofessionals that are working in early childhood are part of the early childhood incumbent workforce. There is lots of financial and academic and other support available to them. If they register with Gateway Registry, they complete their FAFSA for financial aid, they are eligible for a lot of funding. So we anticipate teachers like this not having to come out of pocket, you know, because that was a huge barrier. Paraprofessionals, they don't make a lot. So oftentimes they qualify for a lot of aid 
they need to go after all of the opportunities that's available to them. Not only is there money for early childhood, there are special education scholarships, there's STEM scholarships, there's also loan forgiveness. Eric and Rob, I think you both are at Title I schools. After five years of teaching, they can get loan forgiveness to have up to 50% of their loans forgiven. If they're teaching science or math, or special ed, they can have up to 90% of any loans forgiven. So there's lots of financial resources available. And like Eric was saying earlier, if paraprofessionals talk to their districts, there might be some kind of funding available or the districts might point them in the direction. They do not have to go it alone ever. You know, it can get so overwhelming and it's time consuming to look at online resources and find these funding sources. That's what we're here for. So I have a question for you. Where does someone take a parapro test to become one? So we talked about the three ways to become a paraprofessional, right? If your ACT scores are high enough or if you have the equivalent of an associate's degree or you want to take the test because you don't have those other two. You can go to the Illinois State Board of Education website, or you can contact me at my email, jpatterson3 at govst.edu, and I will send you the link of where you take the Parapro test. And once you pass the Parapro test, you will have an ISB account. And that account will show that you are licensed as a paraprofessional. So that was the first question. And is there a fee? So yes, there is a fee for taking the test. I want to say that fee is somewhere around $75 to $100. The third question is, after obtaining a certificate, how do you find a school that is hiring Rob and Eric? This person wants to be a paraprofessional. How do they find a paraprofessional position? The easiest solution is just to go to our website, www.sd161.org, and click on our human resources tab and our career opportunities. That's where all of our jobs are posted. We also post them on social media, Facebook, Twitter, or K-12 Job Spot. You'll be able to see all of our positions there as well. Jason, we also have that tough population, so I'm just going to bring it up. We have people with bachelor's degrees, many of them. Who are paraprofessionals that already have bachelor's degrees and mm-hmm. you know being able to fund their education is a huge barrier for them what are the programs that they get into how can they access any financial dollars we have a we have a couple of master's programs that will do that for them so we have our initial licensure in special education and our initial licensure in early childhood education At the secondary level, we have post-baccalaureate certificates in English, social studies, math, and I want to say it's biology and biology and chemistry. Yes. So we have five secondary certificates as well. Those will cover both the content area and the courses that you need for your initial licensure. For these parapros, some of those we may be able to, like we discussed earlier, use some PLA in there to meet some of those requirements for the licensure funding for those courses. This is my wheelhouse is the the graduate side. So working with those students, I will say one thing. Earlier, we had talked about the disparity between the teaching population's demographics and the students they're teaching and what how big the gap was. I worked with 13 
paraprofessionals last term that were coming in, every single one of them was a person of color. We are making strides, and most of them came from your guys' districts, actually, I believe, most of the people I talked to. So funding for graduate is a little bit different. There are not federal grants provided because the state and fed use those simply for bachelor's degrees. So there are student loans. Some of these teachers will probably be eligible for loan forgiveness programs as well. We have a couple of different scholarship platforms that we do make available to our students, whether they be funding generated through the school's foundation or some vetted scholarships from outside sources through a, a scholarship platform we use. But I will say a big one for those special ed students, the Illinois Student Aid Commission, ISAC, has a special education teacher grant that they would be eligible for that they can look into so that if they're going to teach in special education or if they're going to work in, maybe they're not teaching, maybe they're going to be a speech pathologist or they're, they're a para-pro for a speech pathologist in your district and they're going to be getting that license would be eligible for because those qualify under their criteria. So there are other funding programs where they would pay four full-time years for them to get that special education degree and get that initial licensure. Again, these programs are designed for seasoned students. So they happen at 4.30 in the afternoon, 7.30 in the evening. We make it very accessible at GSU. Our bread and butter for 50 years has been that older adult population, that transfer and grad population. So this is right in our wheelhouse. This isn't something where every time I go to a conference, there's a session on working with today's learner and the new online and adult learner and how to adjust what you do. We don't have to adjust anything because that's what we've always done. So in that area, we are way ahead of the curve. Um, we've been working with these students. We've been working with first generation students. I mean, the school was built to be a place for adult learners and first-generation students from the Southland to come and complete degrees after they finished an associate's. So transfer students, adult learners, grad students, 30% of our student population are grad students. So we have a, a really large graduate population. We, we were built for these programs and to work with these paraprofessionals. There's a lot of excitement in the school. There's a lot of excitement in the, the parapro community. I get calls all the time. I'm working with them. So for those students that have a bachelor's degree, go to the website, click on graduate admissions. I am the graduate admissions department right now. We're very low staffed. So I will be the guy that responds to your email and sets up the appointment to talk to you. I'm often accused of advocating too much on my students' behalf, I think, by people. So I'm more than happy to be your point person on all this and help you guys out in any way I can. I'm not an expert in financial aid, but I can kind of help you navigate that a little bit and put you in touch with the people. My, my go-to saying is I'm not the person that can fix all your problems, but I guarantee I know the person that can fix the problems. So when in doubt, just reach out to me. I'm happy to talk to you guys. And he brings that enthusiasm to every student that he meets. So we love Jason for that. He is responsible for making this successful for so many teacher candidates. I do want to just mention something that Jason said about the two graduate programs, the early childhood graduate initial licensure for those who already have a bachelor's degree. It doesn't matter what your bachelor's degree is in if you're interested in early childhood. Early childhood is licensure from birth through grade two. And also our program comes with an endorsement for early childhood special education. Remember, there's lots of money 
for early childhood through the state initiative. So if you're part of that early childhood incumbent workforce, there is funding available to you. Also, there's loan forgiveness. Same thing with special education. You can get up to 90% loan forgiveness for special education. And don't be afraid to reach out to your school district. Reach out to people like Eric and Rob who are there to support you. Amy's the coordinator of English. They work with lots of adults. She's had to transform her program into working with adults and meeting their needs. We need to meet the needs of people who are already in the high school building. So our evening classes accommodate those schedules. We have our content courses. Many of them are online as well as in the evening. So that's a really important point to make. We've talked a lot about financial aid and we can work together to get funding. But can you see other challenges that paraprofessionals might face in pursuing teaching credentials? Are there other obstacles that we haven't talked about just need people to be aware of before going into something like this? Well, here's a question is how long does it take? Because time, we know Amy is a huge barrier. These are busy people, many of them with families of their own. So how long does it take to complete a program? Well, it depends. You remember we talked about that huge range of students, some without an associate's degree, some with an associate's degree with a bachelor's. So it depends on where you fit in. So let's say you're that person coming in with an associate's degree. You're going to do finish your bachelor's degree and get your initial license. So for you going to school in the evening and you may be that part time student going nine hours a semester or taking 12 credit hours a semester. We don't advise that you do 15, 18 hours if you are a working adult at all. Let's say you're taking a little less. Typically, it's going to take that person two years to finish. But in your case, it may take three years. So we're developing our cohort programs where they're year round, all terms, so that you're done within three years. Secondary, I think they are done in two years, right? If they come in with a bachelor's degree, you're done in two years. And if you come in with a bachelor's degree and you're wanting to get your master's degree in early childhood or special education, those are two-year program. That early childhood graduate program is a two-year hybrid program. The special ed program is a two-year evening program. So really, it depends. We can go at your pace. So if you're an undergraduate student, these are cohort programs, meaning you're going to have that network of people working with you throughout your entire program, but you can go at your own pace. You might need to be the person that's taking six credit hours. It's going to take you a little longer, but if you're going full steam ahead, then you're looking at two to three years to get your undergraduate degree. But if you're coming in to get a graduate certificate or a master's degree, it's going to take you two years. I don't think we have any more questions, Amy. So we can wrap this up with some final thoughts that you might have, Amy. Well, and I'm wondering about our guest. What do you have to say, Eric and Rob? What are you going to say to encourage people to become teachers? Rob, well, I have a very important question to you. I see some beautiful blonde hair. I just have to get a snippet of that face before we leave. Oh, my goodness. Look at that future teacher. We can start young. Yeah, right. Right. We'll put it right in the program. <laughs> She's in a birth to three program right now. So 
no, I mean, kids are our future. They're, it's important. Right. This is why we do what we do, right? Indeed. Indeed. And it's a, it's a really difficult, but it's a really rewarding career. So I, I encourage anybody to get into it. And the more people that do it, the less the burden will be for the rest of us. So, or the better that we'll do. Thank you for reminding us, Rob. This is a very rewarding profession. It has its challenges because whenever you're working with people, it has its challenges. But this is the most rewarding profession that I can think of because you are impacting lives. All of us have been touched by a teacher. Yeah, absolutely agreed. And if you want to come to work every day and have, if you're not somebody that likes to just do the rote work every day, you want something new, teaching is for you because every day is a, a new day with your students in your in your classroom. So you can have such a, a huge impact upon uh, so many individuals that there's no greater profession in the world. I agree. And it surprises me. We were talking earlier about the huge shortage in middle school. Dr. Joy and I are both middle school teachers at heart. So I just don't understand why there would be such a shortage there. Can't imagine why anybody wouldn't want to work in middle school. Yep. I'm a former former middle school teacher myself and wouldn't go anywhere else but the middle school. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you today. And we have so much more that we can discuss. Like Jason said, we could have a whole hour talking just about the financial aid or the admissions. This has been a great conversation. I look forward to more. So please reach out to any of us. Robert, you got any final parting words? Yeah. Yep. Just thank you so much for all the hard work that you put into this. And Eric, thanks for being a leader in the field and st- being a pilot for this partnership so the rest of us have a model to follow. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy. And Dr. Joy.